Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Put it in perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of She Builds Podcast, where we tell the untold stories of women in the architecture and building construction industry, one lady at a time. Well, for today, we are actually going to tell two stories, but I'll explain that later. On today's episode, we will focus on Beverly Lorraine Green the first ever licensed African-American woman in the United States, and Georgia Louise Harris-Brown, who was the second. I'm Jessica Rogers, based out of Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by my besties and fellow co-hosts, Lizzie Energy. Hey, girl, hey! I'm Lizzie Rar on day 100 of quarantine in San Francisco. And I'm Nurjiri Rivas, celebrating my birthday weekend in Houston, Texas. All right. So like always, before we begin, a quick disclaimer. We are not historians or experts. Right. So if we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning. So today's episode is going to be a little different than our previous episodes. Really? How so? Well, in this episode, we are going to be focusing on two ladies. Two episodes in one? Was yes. that two for the price oh. of one? Yeah. <laughs> Bogo. Bogo. Yes, I was going to say, it's like a buy one, get one deal. <laughs> <laughs> Making it rain episode. Yes. So the reason why is actually kind of twofold. We will begin with Beverly. She is the first African-American woman to be licensed. Which I think attributes to the very little information that I was able to find on her. But coincidentally, around the time that Beverly was doing her thing, another lady was living her life, Miss Georgia Louise Harris Brown, the second African American woman licensed in the US. Oh, hey. So where are you going to start? Okay, let's begin with Beverly Lorraine Green, who was born on October 4th, 1915, in Chicago, Illinois. 
She was the only child to James Green, a lawyer, and Vera, a homemaker. Not much is found on her childhood, so we'll fast forward to what we do know. That's fair. Beverly earned her Bachelor of Science degree in Architectural Engineering from the University of Illinois in 1936. And one year later, she earned a Master's of Science degree in City Planning and Housing from the same university. And of course, Beverly was the first African-American woman to graduate with this degree from the University of Illinois. Now for a brief lesson on architectural education in the United States. In previous episodes, we have discussed how women learned about architecture. Some of them started with engineering type of degrees. Some have went to Europe to study, like, for example, Julia Morgan went to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, and some just had friends, a.k.a. Mariano. (laughs) Before the 1800s, there really wasn't a standard when it came to practice of architecture. So how did it even get started? A group of prominent architects got together and formed the American Institute of Architects in 1857. The founding members, Richard Morris Hunt, Richard Upjohn, John Welch, Joseph C. Wells, Fred A. Peterson, Charles Babcock, and a few others laid the foundation that established architecture as a profession. They established standards that are seen today, including the birth of architecture taught in school, by giving support to architectural programs in school. Actually, the American Institute of Architects, the AIA, was formed years before architecture was taught in the United States. One of the earliest architecture schools in the U.S. was the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in 1868. Cornell University in 1871, Columbia University and Tuskegee both in 1881 and the University of Illinois in 1873, the school that Beverly attended. Other figures to know and potential future episodes, Mary Louisa Page graduated from this university in 1879, who just so happened to be the first woman to graduate with a degree in architecture in North America. Future episode alert. And now, back to Beverly. After graduating from the University of Illinois, Beverly went on to work for the Chicago Housing Authority, and at just 27, she became licensed, making her the first African-American woman licensed in Illinois and in North America. And one thing to point out, that for her to even work at the Chicago Housing Authority in 1945 was monumental, given her race and gender. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. And she was licensed so young. I'm a little jealous. Not going to (laughs) lie. Tell us what happened next. Right. So with her background in city planning and in housing, she became aware of something that was happening in New York Um, through the New York City Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, MetLife. They were developing something called the Stuyvesant Town, a large private housing project in lower Manhattan. Beverly, she ended up moving to New York to work on this project. And she was one of the first architects hired for the job, even though she would not even be allowed to live in the very place she was designing. Crazy. Seriously? Wow, that sounds really crazy. Sometimes it's really easy to forget the reality of those times. Yeah. Um, Needless to say, she didn't stay there too long, though, because shortly after moving to New York, she got a scholarship to attend Columbia University. 
where she received a master's degree in architecture from Columbia University in 1945. Wait, Jessica, let's recap. She has a degree in architectural engineering, a master's in science, city planning and housing, and then she got a master's of architecture? Yep. Wow. <laughs> Raina. Degrees on degrees. <laughs> degrees on degrees. <laughs> Very impressive. Yes. Okay, so another interesting fact that I came across about her is that while in New York, she became friends with like several famous black figures, including uh, Duke Ellington and Lena Horne. Ooh. Oh, yeah. She was also a member of the Council for the Advancement of the Negro in Architecture that advocated for the advancement of black architects. Wow. She was involved in a really important organization. Yeah, it sounds like it. So what are some of the other projects that Beverly worked on? So one of the firms that she worked at was Edward Durrell Stone, where she worked on projects like this art complex at Sarah Lawrence College and a theater at the University of Alabama. In 1955, she also worked with uh, Marcel Brewer at his New York office. Oh, okay. Wait, is architect <laughs> Marcel Brewer? Wow, <laughs> he's famous for his involvement in Bauhaus and modernist architecture and furniture. Syracuse has a whole archive dedicated to him. I bet you she worked on really cool projects with him. That she did. That she did. Beverly worked on the UNESCO United Nations headquarters in Paris, which was completed in 1958. She also did some buildings for NYU as well. Although Beverly never really got to see the completion of all the buildings that she worked on, there was one. The Unity Funeral Home in New York City. Beverly passed on August 22, 1957, at age 41. Ironically, her memorial service was held at the very building she helped design. And from what I've researched, she was never married nor had kids. Wow. That feels really full circle that her memorial was in a building that she actually designed. Also, she was so young when she died. Yeah. Yeah. I think her story is important for us to tell because she was the first. She was designing buildings that even if she was still alive, the systemic racism in our country wouldn't allow her to inhabit but her story isn't the only one that I'm going to tell today. I can't believe we weren't taught her story in architecture school. It's so important. I can't wait for the next one. Right. So like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, while Beverly was doing her thing, we also have to talk about Georgia Louise Harris Brown. She is considered to be the second African-American woman to be licensed in the United States. So, Jessica, why do you want to tell her story alongside Beverly? During this time in history, similar to today, the racial injustices in this country were becoming more visible, if you will. Segregation, commonly referred to the Jim Crow South, was happening. The event, like the Great Migration, was also happening between the years 1916 and 1970s. And the Great Migration, for those of you that don't know, was when Blacks moved from the rural South to larger cities up north, in the West, and to the Midwest. So, Jessica, what role did architecture play during this time period? So during this time, I can go to several ways that architecture was a part of the problem. I briefly mentioned the Stuyvesant project that Beverly worked on. That was just an example of systems that were put in place to not allow for minorities to succeed. These systems can be seen today 
with things like gentrification of cities, housing prices, and redlining, of course. And in the professional setting, the erasure of minority architects during that time was even more apparent in the profession. That's one of the reasons why my story on Beverly is so short, not only because of her short life, but there really isn't much information on her. And I feel like we have to talk about Georgia Louise Brown, because although she was not the first, her story is still important. Her approach to navigating the architecture profession during that time was different than Beverly, but they both dealt with the same issues as black women. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm excited to learn about her. Okay, so tell us about Georgia. Yeah. So Georgia Louise Harris Brown. Actually, she preferred to be called Louise. So out of respect, that's what we're going to say. Okay. Okay. So Louise was born in 1918 in Topeka, Kansas. She was one of five. Her father was a shipping clerk and her mother was a stay-at-home mother, but she occasionally taught school and studied classical music. Also, something to note is that all of her siblings became college graduates. Interesting, right? Wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, super cool. Okay, here's where there's an overlap between these two stories. While visiting her brother in Chicago, Louise became enamored with the strong Black presence that was Chicago. Mind you, by the time that Louise visits Chicago, Chicago would have already become an established city known as a Black refuge for the Jim Crow South, a.k.a. you can read The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's great migration by Isabel Wilkerson. It's a great read. It'll explain all of this stuff. I actually really enjoyed that book. Um, but anyway, so in Chicago, Louise was rumored to have met a Miss Vanderoe. Oh, hey. <laughs> I love me some Mies. Yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> That's so cool. Mies van der Rohe is another architect. We like to call him Mies. We're on a first name basis. Yep. He's a major influence in architectural education in the U.S. He was the last director of the Bauhaus, a major school in Germany that we've mentioned before. But Nazi Germany closed Bauhaus for political reasons. And long story short, Mies landed in the U.S., he ended up in Chicago and taught at the Armour Institute, which today is the Illinois Institute of Technology, or IIT. Pretty famous school for architects, too. So Mies ends up playing a very integral role in Louise's life. After spending two years at Washburn University in Kansas, doing who knows what, um, she ended up enrolling in the School of Engineering and Architecture at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. And during this time, she also got married to James A. Brown in 1941. Do you remember the brother that Louise had in Chicago? Yeah. Uh-huh. James was his roommate, and that's how they met. <gasps> oh, kick you. Yeah, right? All right. So, okay. So, although she studied at the University of Kansas, she also took evening classes at IIT to learn from East. And finally, in 1944, Louise graduated with her architecture degree from the University of Kansas. Shortly after, Louise is in Chicago working for the Black architect and structural engineer, Kenneth Roderick O'Neill, who also learned from Meese and was BFF to Beverly. Oh, so they were connected through Meese? <laughs> yeah. Nice. That's wild. So in 1949, Louise became a licensed architect for the state of Illinois making her the second Black woman in the country to get her license at 31. Woo! Yeah! Yeah! 
All right. So after working with Kenneth from 1945 to 1952, Louise worked for Karnacker Associates, the structural engineer bestie of Mies. And there she assisted in the designing of residences and additions to factories, offices and auditorium buildings. Louise developed structural calculations for reinforced steel and concrete buildings, which you can see at Mises projects like the Promontory and 860 Lakeshore Drive apartment buildings. Oh, she also worked with Woodrow B. Dolphin, who was an African-American engineer, and she was also one of the first black members of the Chicago chapter of Alpha Alpha Gamma, the professional association that in 1948 was renamed to the Association of Women in Architecture. That's so cool. So what happened after 1952? Well, in 1952, the civil rights movement was beginning to rev up in America. And for Louise, it became more and more apparent that her opportunities for advancement were very limited. To add, she also divorced her husband. Oh, no. Oh. Did they have kids? Yes. So she had two kids. James, named after the father slash ex-husband, and Uh Georgia Louise. So Louise, she ends up sending her two kids to live with her parents in Topeka in 1952 so that she could work on projects in Brazil. Brazil? Brazil? <laughs> Just a casual, you know, I'm going to yeah. run off to Brazil situation. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so meanwhile, in Brazil, during the beginning of the 1950s, Brazil was becoming this happening place for modern architecture. It was being recognized in American and European magazines and in exhibitions. So with that in mind... Louise was looking for a new country free from the Jim Crow laws. And by January 1954, Louise received a permanent residency visa from Brazil. She learned Portuguese and began working in Brazil. That's so cool. I feel like I've said that's so cool a thousand times today, but that's so (laughs) cool. She was able to make this decision to leave, which I'm sure was super hard. Not only cool. Um... Tell us, what kind of work was she doing in Brazil? Yes. So in Brazil, she worked under Charles Bosworth, an American who early had established a major industrial construction company. She worked there from 1954 to 1966. And while working there, she was also able to gain significant experience in the design, construction and administration of industrial and prefabricated building sites that were very likely could not have been obtained in the United States. Seemed like she was able to work on some major projects in Brazil. Were there any that stood out to you? Yes. So some of the projects that she worked on include the Kodak Film Plant in São José dos Campos in São Paulo, Brazil, completed in 1971, and the Trorion, which is the foam and mattress plant, which was completed in 1965. In 1970, Louise was able to obtain her Brazilian architecture license. Oh, cool. And yeah. And feeling less dependent on the large construction contractors that she was working with, she was able to extend her portfolio to include projects like private residencies and condominiums. So with her Brazilian license, she was able to have her own practice? Yes. She founded the firm Brown Botan Construtura LTDA, and then followed by Gryphus Architectura LTDA. There, she worked on more residential projects, working with private investors and real estate developers. She worked in Brazil all the way until 1993, 
when due to illness, she was forced into retirement and returned to the United States. She had moved to Washington, D.C. to be closer to her family that was there. And in 1999, Louise suffered from Alzheimer's. She also had surgery for cancer and unexpectedly she went into a coma. Oh, no. Louise had passed away at the age of 81 later that year. Wow. What an amazing life and career, though. She really lived. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. And to live to the year 1999. Like she was alive during our lifetime, you guys. That's wild. This is nutty. (laughs) Yeah. Well, both these ladies achieved so much through so much adversity. They are so, so, so inspiring. Yeah. So while in Brazil, Louise wrote a letter somewhere around the mid 1980s. Louise never thought of herself as being a black pioneer female architect, but simply as an architect. But she was. When I think of her story and Beverly's, they are the women that I aspire to be as a woman of color in this industry. They were able to overcome so many obstacles and really pave the way for African-American women. These women are the first and the second African-American women to become licensed in the United States. As of today, there have been 478 licensed African-American women total throughout U.S. history. Currently in the United States, there are about 115,000 active licensed architects. 19% of them are women. 2% of them are African-American. And only 0.3% of them are African-American women. I, I'm stunned. I, I can't believe that. It sounds incredible. I feel like I have to repeat those numbers to myself so that they sink in. So you said 478 in the history of licensed architects are black women and out of 115,000 architects today about 345 are black women which means out of 478 in history 345 are practicing today yeah i don't i don't know what to say about this We still have a lot of work to do to reach gender equity. And racial equity. Right. And I mean, it I guess it kind of makes sense. Jessica, you were saying that um, Louise was still alive in 1999 and she was only the second woman to be licensed. Exactly. So when you think about it that way, I mean, we were alive then. Right. Mm -hmm. And so so the woman who was the second to be licensed was alive during our lifetime. I mean, that just shows you right there how few have been licensed. Yeah, these numbers aren't numbers that I'm unaware of. I know that there is very few. I can anybody that's in this profession that's a woman of color, they know that it's very seldom do you, that you see people that look like you, whether you're in school, whether you're even practicing. For some, it can change depending on where you live in this country or in this world. Um, But for me, I knew these numbers were low. I didn't think that they were that low. I think hearing Beverly and Louise's story, that's what's shocking to me is that it's so recent, you know, like, yeah, it's it's, we do. We do have a lot of work, but 
This leads me to the second half of our episode, the karyotid. Um, Nordri, can you remind the people who and what a karyotid is? Yes. A karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode will choose a karyotid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. So without further ado, this week's karyotid is... <laughs> Tiffany Brown. Woo! Yay! Tiffany! <laughs> okay, so Tiffany Brown is a woman of many things. She is a mother, an architecture professional based out of Detroit, Michigan. She is also a project manager at the Detroit's office Smith Group, which is a really big firm, by the way. Um, they are huge supporters of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Not only is she a project manager, but she's also a teacher at Lawrence Tech University, their College of Architecture and Design. And also just this year, Tiffany got awarded the AIA 2020 Associates Award. And for those of you that don't know, the AIA Associates Award is given to individual associate AIA members to recognize outstanding leaders and creative thinkers for significant contributions to their communities and the architecture profession. But the reason why I chose Tiffany to be the karyotid for this episode is because on top of everything that she does, she is the epitome for furthering the profession with the initiative that she started called 400 Forward. I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. So 400 Forward was named in light of the 400th living African-American woman recently becoming a licensed architect in 2017. The initiative aims to seek out and support the next 400 licensed women architects with an underlying focus on African-American girls through exposure, mentorship, and financial assistance. 400 Forward has been launched as a comprehensive program which introduces young girls to architecture, provides scholarships and wraparound services to college students, and pays for study material and licensing exams for African-American women in architecture. I just feel so ignorant right now. I'm, I'm so shocked with these numbers. Like In 2017, we reached the number 400. I'm just, it's incredible. Yeah, I know. I have to say, though, I love this initiative. We need more programs like this to help women get licensed in general. But I love that it's focusing on African-American women. We need to raise that number from 478. And it takes so much work, time and money to go through the licensing process in general. And you need Mm -hmm. people encouraging you along the way at a minimum. Yeah. And we need people that look like us mentoring us along the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm really thankful we're discussing this today, Jessica. You've really opened my eyes. It's important to be aware of the reality we're living in the profession, not just through history, but today. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica, so much for this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh this episode is very special to me. Um, now, when I think of what the world is witnessing that's happening in this country with racial injustice, um, systemic racism still exists today. Whether you look at it one way or the other, it's still there. I'm really glad that we have this platform to not only share these stories that we don't typically hear, but 
this episode in particular, it's looking at it through a different lens that I don't think other people would see. Mm -hmm. Anyways, uh, we are at the end of our episode. But before we go, we would like to give thanks to CMYK for the music that you listen to, to our technical producer, John W., for working his magic. And of course, to all of you listeners out there, we hope you get inspired by Beverly, Louise and Tiffany. With the current climate surrounded by racial injustice, I hope that with these stories, you get a better understanding of how this problem was influenced by architecture and influence architects today. So again, thank you for listening. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast or on Twitter at shebuildspod. Until then, bye. Bye. The event, like the great my gate, my. I also had a burp. St- Sorry, I also had like a burp stuck. And then I was like, I'm gonna speak and burp. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.